what up everybody and welcome back to the 13th floor where the furniture isn't always the best but the views are now amazing your time dj Barry be fresh this is a very special special podcast so i'm gonna need you to drop that dog for me today we got the cues on the podcast shout out to 92 is in the building mike d gator what's going on bro what's going on bro what's going on what's going on glad to be here that's right. The cues are taking over the 13th floor today. This is going to be the out edition. Well, like I said, we, like we've been talking about before, we've been introducing the team for geology. Mike is a newer addition to the team, but still he's bringing that same intensity, same fire to the team. So we're going to get into that, bro, get into his history, his background, and, you know, go on from there. So, Mike, Rude. what's what happening, is, what bro? Is, bro? What's going on, team? What's let's going on? let's start with uh let's start with where you from, team. What's going on? Where where does Mike D where is Mike D hail from? Uh, Mike D born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, couple of spots. You no, know, grew up with mom. Uh, dad died when I was uh, basically I was eleven. I was separated from him when I was a baby. So in between the city of Cleveland, where people traditionally know, kind of spinning around suburbs, moving back and forth. But for general purposes, Cleveland, Ohio is my home. That's where I was born and raised. Okay, how was it growing up in Cleveland, man? Because I've heard, you know, we got BJ from Cincinnati, uh, Fresh. He said he grew up in Shaker Heights. And, you know, all of them say Ohio is, you know, a, a pretty rough state to kind of grow up in. So is Cleveland the same way? Yeah, Cleveland the same way. Actually, I graduated from Shaker Heights High School. So me and him got a whole lot of time. Um, but yeah, it's it's different. That snow, that that winter, that winter makes you tough real quick. It could be it could be May thirty first. You got your barbecue plan, and all of a sudden you get three inches of snow. <laughs> so you got to <laughs> you got to really be on your toes about the weather. Um, but it's almost like you live in the north, but everybody around there got that southern feel. Uh, it's the city of hope, so a lot of people, you know, as they were migrating from the south to the north because of the slavery. It was Cleveland, it was Chicago, it was Detroit on their way to get to New York. So it's a whole lot of Southern hospitality, even though you live in it's real down to earth. Um, and it's cool, it's a small city. So pretty much if you don't know the person who's related to them, um, and you can really do some things, do some things up there. A lot of people think of it as being Ohio, like it's kind of like a farm country. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ohio got maybe about three states. I mean, three cities. They got Cleveland, you got Cincinnati, you got Akron. Columbus is the capital, but Columbus is just Ohio State University. So mm-hmm. once you take the university out, there's really nothing else left. Um, but Cleveland itself, it's, it's a nice spot to be. Nice spot to grow up in. It was fun. Made me who I am. Okay, so so how was it, man? What did you experience growing up in Cleveland? A uh, little bit of everything. So you got, you know I mean, you got your friendships. Um, we lived uh, down in the city, so a lot of people know Bone Thugs and Harmony. Yeah. Uh, I lived in the same city that they did. My grandmother lived around the corner from where they grew up. My cousins went to school with them. So when they album dropped, a lot of people kind of asked, does everybody in Cleveland talk like that? Like, nah, but you understand kind of where they're coming from. Um, a lot of people came. So at that time when I was growing up, it was crazy because the Crips had just came from L.A. 
and they came into Cleveland and started taking over the city. Wow. So it was a lot of people start popping up stuff. We had different gangs, a lot of stuff coming from Chicago into the city. So it's your typical urban environment, just like it is everywhere else. The typical inner cities, the typical African American population. Um, but you still gotta make sure that you get out. So my boots, um, she did a whole lot to make sure that I didn't get caught up in a lot of stuff with my friends. Um, even though I'm an only child, it's to a point that I got like 60 brothers because from us moving around, she always opened the house. So I wake up on Saturday morning I go in the kitchen. I got three or four of my friends sitting at the table eating pancakes, eggs, and sausage. Like, hey man, did y'all leave me some? Um, because she always kept it open and they was always around. So we moved from apartments between different cities. So like I spent kindergarten in one school, first, second, and third grade, and another one, fourth, fifth, and sixth, back to the same community that I was in for kindergarten. Went back to Shaker and graduated from high school, and that was a lot. So, a lot of the kids that grow up in that environment, the parents move them to the best place in order for them to get the best education. So you do Section Eight. Um, you live in a different apartments because you got the one on your lease. You living with a friend, you living with a family member, just to make sure you can get what you need in order to get out. Um, the crazy part about the city is everything's kind of done in sections. Mm -hmm. So you really don't lose your neighborhood. You got your church, you got your family members, you got your school, you got your bank, you got your grocery store, are all within like four or five blocks. So people that usually leave the city of Cleveland kind of get exposed to a whole different environment. And you either leave and don't come back, or you leave and you come back with a completely different perspective. So for me, I was a little bit of both. Uh, once I decided to leave, my thought was I was leaving and going as far away from there as possible. And my friends made sure that I didn't get caught up in stuff because you are the one that's going to get out. So they would always, if something was going to go down, if they was going to have a fight, if they was going to do whatever, Mike, we making sure you go home because we don't want your mother whooping our butt. Um, <laughs> so life is good. <laughs> life is good. Life is good. I love the death. My friends are still where they at. Uh, I love them to death. I love the community, I love the environment. And even to today, if I see anybody that I grew up with, one of their first questions is, hey man, how's your mom? Um, so she had a real impact on my life, a real impact on their lives. Uh, the family, when they get to meet, my kids know that they got several uncles. They got the uncles that's in the frat, and they got the uncles that live, they grew up with my dad. So they always like, is that another uncle? Yep, is that another uncle? Yep, another uncle. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's cool. It's real cool. It's real cool. It was good though. It was good. So the era, um, just so we can put a time on this, is this like late seventies, early eighties? What are we looking at? Uh yeah, I grew up I'm born in seventy two. Right. Uh so you figure eighties into nineties is when kind of you get into your adolescence, like really growing up here. So I graduated in nineteen ninety. Okay. So pretty much the 80s, you got Run DMC, you got Houdini, you got the Fat Boy, Sun Pepper and they heyday, the original LL Cool J with the Kango on, and don't never take it off the people trying to figure out what's under his hat. You know what I mean, <laughs> hip hop was really good too, a new stage, so like we break dancing. Uh, it's an interesting story. One of my cousins, you know, we got into a fight with Erica, we was break dancing at a party, just a couple guys that live around the Glenville area. 
on 105 in St. Clair, where uh, everybody know, like, if you listen to the Bone Club, they talk about St. Clair growing up on the Clair. So we was down there break dancing, dudes get crazy, about 80 dudes trying to chase us, and we run up and down the street trying not to get jumped. And he ended up getting hit. So, you know, stuff like that, that's all happening during that time. Uh, you got the We Are the World out going on. Yeah, a lot of stuff is happening in there. Michael Jackson, you know, his hair caught on fire at that time. That's the Pepsi so, thing, right? Right, yeah. That's the, yep, the commercial. Yeah. So all of that happening. We got, uh, it's interesting that I've talked to a couple of people that I worked with and asked, had they seen Under the Cherry Moon? They're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah, you don't I don't even know what you're talking about. All right, you don't know Morse Day? You don't know the time? You don't know about Jerome? I don't know what you're talking about. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, that, that's where it is. That's the era. That created everything. That's the foundation for hip-hop. That's the foundation for R&B. Um, and that's how we became our generation. Like, we're old school, even though we got a whole lot of new school players. Right. Because a lot of the music that we grew up on was the, the sampling of the Motown songs. That so, like, I definitely can. Goodness. Yeah, that I definitely can attest to because it's crazy. Me being, you know, born in the 80s, but, you know, growing up in the 90s, I listen to songs today and I'll mess around and be on, you know, the old school radio station or the oldie but goodies radio station. And I'll hear something. It's like, wow, they sampled that. So it's crazy, yeah. man. We got a lot of you guys passed on a lot of stuff from that era musically. Yeah, everything was on vinyl still. So, you know, you listen to a song, your parent like, oh, that ain't nothing but the old Marvin Gaye track. Yeah. And they go get the album or they go get the eight track and they pop it in. You're like, you know what? That's right. <laughs> so a lot of the producers at that time, they weren't making their own beats. They wasn't making their own sounds. They would just create new rhymes, putting it over the instrumentals of the old school. So it's interesting now that I kind of hear myself talking to the kids, like, you know, what the heck are y'all listening to? Right. And it was the same thing my parents told us. Like, what is that? Like, oh, that ain't nothing but the mashed potato. That ain't the wild. That's this. That's that. Yeah. So, things was good. Things was good. Uh, moms always made sure that I was in the church on a regular basis. Um, so, you still got that foundation that's built. Um, but Cleveland, Cleveland shaped me. It truly did. It truly did. And you say your mom moved you around a lot. And you said that, so you think yeah. that was the big thing that kind of kept you out of the gangs and all of the mischief and stuff that was going on around because you said that I think the Crips had moved in to Cleveland at the time. So that yeah. her moving you from place to place, that's what kind of saved you from that? Yeah, she would, she would kind of peep the situation, check the environment and when stuff would get, it'd get crazy. It was to a point she like, you know, we got moved. And it would be as, as many of the relationships that I had and built from just the people that I was going to school with. It would be, I understand that you got your friends, but you can make new friends. So that basically got to my personality where it's like, not so much you you kind of miss the people that you're with, but you're kind of excited because now you get the opportunity to meet new people. And that doesn't mean that you still can't talk to the people that you did build those relationships with. And that's why my circle of friends is so big because I still maintain contact with them. So even though I may go to school in one area, I'm going to my grandmother's house that lives in the city. And then during the summers, I may go see one of my friends. At the same time, a lot of the moms talk to each other. So there are people that I would leave in fourth grade and we go to a different school and I walk in on the first day of fifth grade and your mom moved you too. 
So it was really about getting everybody to a place where we can make sure we just want our kids to navigate through everything in this education system and come out on the other end and be able to have an opportunity. Um, so I remember uh, when I was going to my ninth grade year, she gave me a choice. She was like, you're not going to the high school. You can either go to this all boys school or we're going to go and then we use your grandma's, we live grandma's, use your auntie address and you go to shape. Like, mom, I'm not going to all boys school. Like that's, she's like, all right, well, you move into your grandmother, you're going to use your auntie address, you mess up, they're going to kick you out. So you're going to have to be on your best behavior. And I literally went to Shaker living in the city of Cleveland. So how far uh, is Shaker? Which was a whole, Shaker from is maybe about 20 minutes, 25 minute ride, which was crazy because everybody knew where I lived and I played basketball. So I got a basketball scholarship to go to UM. So like I, I was good. Um, but everybody where I lived knew that I was supposed to be playing for that team and we were in the same league. So oh, we man, so play, they got you with the recruiting stuff, huh? <laughs> it was one of those, if you don't say nothing, we won't say nothing. No, we want you here as long as you don't become a discipline problem, everything will be good. But when we would play that school, like they would literally chant, like Mike doesn't live there. So <laughs> we would go to like, we go to the home gym. And I remember the first game uh, I played at that gym in my community. Like coach took me out and we sit for a little bit. And he would just literally start hitting me with batteries. I'm like, coach, I got to get back on the gym. He was like, what? I'm like, look, and I pointed down to my feet. And it was like little AAA, double A batteries. He was like, People what's People was throwing batteries like, at you? Like Man, like them guys right there, man, they trying to get me in trouble. He was like, you know what? Get back in. And like every time we would play there, I would literally play the whole game. Like I wouldn't come out to warm up until the game was ready to start. Uh-huh. I wouldn't come out for halftime. At the end of the game, I got buried in the locker room. And then during the week, they're like, man, you know, you, know, you ain't supposed to be playing for them. Right. So we got favored to go to state. We were supposed to win states my senior year. But that gets into a whole free throw conversation because Mike missed the free throws and we end up losing by one. So, oh, that, man. That, yeah, that yeah. is still known to this. I am I am 44 years old and my friends still look at me like, I don't believe you missed the free throws. Um, and it took me a while. We had, uh, I missed 20 uh, 11 one one And I could shoot free throws with my eyes closed. Easy. Yeah. I know that's yeah, tough, that man. Uh, I, yeah, I accept it. I really, I really and truly believe that if I had made the free throws, my life would have been a different way. Um, but it's that point in your life where your path is either going to be defined by what you do or what you don't do, regardless of whether it's good or bad. You're just going to go in these two directions. Mm-hmm. And because I missed it, I ended up going to Miami. I can kind of see that path going that way. If I had made them, we would have and it could have been a whole completely different direction that my life would have gone in. So I accept it. Um, it took me at least five years to make the free throw, even when I thought about it after I missed it. But <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> but you were still able to catch, tra- um, catch a scholarship to UM. So, I mean, you definitely made the most of that situation. Yeah, yeah, I got a scholarship. I was on the team for a year and then, uh, then it was done. What happened? Why did you end up leaving after after only a year? Uh, honestly, I got kicked off because I, I became my own mate. So the, uh, the whole process was crazy. The uh, coach at that time was Mary Hamilton. Uh, he's the coach now at Florida State. So it was a couple of us that came in. Uh, it was 
actually six freshmen that year. Me, Mike Gardner, Pat Lawrence, uh, Constantine Popa, and uh, I'm trying to find who's up. Uh, it was one more. So all of us are together. He's got these rules. I get injured, going back and forth. Um, travel situations, mom's coming. He gets all crazy about being in, you know, having a female in the room. They're like, that's his mother. He's like, I know the female. So he and I go back and forth that December. We started our process. Uh, the OD bros asked me to get a recommendation because, you know, it'd be good to get a recommendation from the basketball coach because we got a basketball player pledging. Mm-hmm. Kind of go through that. Sit down with him. He's like, look, I'm not going to have anybody in the fraternity on my team. If you are going to be in the frat, you're going to play as my friend. We got the big KA side paddles on the wall. Like, look, man, I'm not doing that. He's like, well, if I sign these papers, you're off the team. I'll make the phone call as soon as I sign. And by then, I was fed up. So mom's always stressed academics. Um, she never allowed me to play if I got a C on any assignment. It wasn't about the C in the grade. Like at the quarter, at the semester, at the end of the year, like if I got a C on the test, a C on the homework, she would literally let the coach know, like, keep my playing. And it really took me to try her on that. Mm-hmm. So the first time I got it, she told him, like, he's not playing. That's my son. We in Birkin. He's not playing. And I got the worst looks the whole game for my coach. And I never again got a C on anything. So my thought process was I'm here for education, not to necessarily play basketball. So I can go right over to financial aid. I can just be here on academic scholarship. I ain't got to deal with your academic scholarship because I'm tired of you. So you know what? Sign the paper. And I had already tore the muscle on my chest. So I'm on medication. I'm supposed to have surgery. Like, dude, you know what? This is enough. It got to a point where, like, I'm literally not playing. I got my knee in there mobilized. He's telling me I'm not allowed to have books in this practice. Like, man, I got a test. I'm not practicing. I can't even walk. This don't but sound like a, a, a good coach, man. I don't know about this right. dude. Right, and that's kind of how I got to a point. And literally, everybody that came in with me. So I got kicked off my freshman year. Akil Swaby, who was a freshman, he made rookie of the year. That was our first year in the Big East. He made rookie of the year in the Big East. He tells him after the season, you're not allowed to shoot anymore. So he transfers out. Then he transferred to Central Florida. Um, Mike Gardner gets into a situation that was similar to mine. They were going traveling. He was from Virginia. They go to play Georgetown. He goes to see his mom's and his aunt. His uncle tries to bring him back. They get caught in the D.C. Virginia traffic. He's coming late. He lets him know. So he sits him. He's like, all right, you know, I'll take it. So he's like, all right, well, the way you act, I'm going to sit you the next back. So he sits in the pit. By the time they come back, he kicks him off of the pit. And the same thing happened to Pat Lawrence. Pat Lawrence was in it. He ended up getting crazy with coach. He ended up leaving. His brother had come down, uh, Anthony Lawrence. They were together. So when Ant left, Pat left, and Pat went to Central Florida. So the only person out of our freshman class that played the whole time was TC, uh, with named Constantine Pope, but we called him TC. But that was because he was from Romania and they was going through civil war. There wasn't no place for him to go back to. Wow. So he the only one. And it got to a point that people were asked, like, I played on campus, I played in the real estate, like, hey, you need to come back. Like, look, I'm not coming back until he leaves, he's not going nowhere. Right. So I watch you guys from afar. Um, but that was cool. That one year that I had, in addition to like growing up, you know, like, I got to be along, basketball was along with football. So, like, I know Mike Barrow, I know Stat, um, I know, well, what now is The Rock. 
Um, all of us were basically together as one. So we worked out together. We would go to Luke's club together. We eat together. You know, what I mean, life is life. Everything was good. So I appreciate it. Yeah, man. So you were down there in the Miami heyday. So outside of you know that basketball experience, you know, you say you pledged the frat. What else was your experience like at the University of Miami? I know the bright lights and big city of Miami are one thing, but how how did you you know grow up on the, on the campus? Uh, campus was good, so I basically ended up uh, coming to frat the second semester of my freshman year. So pretty much my entire college career, I was involved in frats, I was sorority, so I ended up becoming president of FBG. Um, that was pretty cool because you got a chance to be a leader on campus and do some different things. Um, I understand now that bonds still exist, um, but that's kind of how we got connected with Carol because we actually created bond when we were there. Because it was kind of a time when you realized from the perspective that the university is making a lot of money off of athletes and most of the athletes on this campus are black. So at some point in time, we need to organize and kind of realize that we have some strength and some power and what actually happens on this community and what actually happens on the campus. So it was a lot of conversation that was going on about trying to get the football players to really structure themselves to where they can make some some true demands of what was happening on campus for the benefit of all black people. Um, I had gotten to a point where I realized then my gift was to work with youth. So a lot of the things that I did in terms of my work study environment and my jobs was working like little Havana school, developing youth programs. So that kind of led to what I do now in terms of working and designing programs for youth. That all started in Miami. Um, I met my wife in Miami. Um, so being able to truly get out and experience the community, um, I got to a point where I realized that you cannot judge people by their skin color. You cannot assume what they are, or what their background is, or their beliefs, or their likes, or those type of things. Because in Miami, it's a melting pot. So you can have a person that's dark skin with an afro that's Cuban. You can have a person with light skin with blue eyes that's Jamaican. Yep. Um, so you truly get to know people and have a conversation with people. Um, and being from Cleveland, everything is black and white or you stop. So you can look and make the assumption. Uh, once you get to Miami, it challenges all of those stereotypes, everything that you grew up on, because you hear about racism and you don't like racism because of my black skin. And then you get to Miami and you got people that are that color that don't speak English, that are not from this country, and no idea what you're talking about. Uh, so it truly got to broaden my horizons, my thought process, thinking completely different about just life in general. Um, the craziest thing I remember going to a Jamaican restaurant, seeing your traditional Jamaican woman, and she having a conversation, and her husband came out the back and he was Chinese. Yeah, was man. You're like talking about did. the joint right there on, um, I think it's on Kindle Drive. I, I think Jamaica Kitchen. Yeah, yeah. I went in there. Yeah, so you look. <laughs> first time ever seeing a Chinese Jamaican, and I was like, wow, what the heck? Yeah, man. Right. So, so we were there with Rohan. You got Rohan Marley there, you got his brothers there, and Rohan knows them, they know Rohan, they start to click like, wait a minute, are you for real? Like, you know the Marley's. Right. I mean, he know all of Bob Marley, you know, he's a Jamaican legend, but, you know, his kids is conversing, so it challenges everything that you know. Um, it got me to truly see the world differently, um, and that's just over the time that I was there. So I got there, 
in 90, at the end of 90, 91, I left in 98. So that particular time has, has created me to be who I am. Okay. And you mentioned that you, uh, you know, you came into contact with Carol then, um, was it to help start bond or did you guys have, you know, other adventures together? Uh, we had some other ventures, but that's kind of where it started. So we started trying to figure out, I remember sitting around, it was me, him, a couple other people, Jason, Gary, uh, JD, and we all sitting around trying to figure out, you know, what type of acronym can we come up with in order to create the name? And then you start to get that mindset of, you know, we can actually do some things to have an impact in the community. So we had created to where we were going to go and start doing youth programs just throughout the community. And all started from that necessity for me. Um, because it was basically like my major was English, my minor was history. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, what type of job am I get? Because I wanted to be an engineer. And you know, you got basketball and engineering, they give you that. You, know, you got 18 credits your first semester. You got 21 every semester after. So if you're an athlete, you may want to reconsider, you know, your, your major. Um, so I immediately, literally the first week that I was there, I dropped engineering. I'm like, I'll be on the side, so I get this basketball thing figured out. Um, you go through the process with the bros, and my GPA didn't reflect what it should have reflected at the end of the first semester. <laughs> you can't get into the, you can't get into the business school because you need a two five. So uh, at that time, it was a conversation that whatever your major is, you can become a teacher in the state of Florida. Mm -hmm. I'm like, all right, well, you, I, you know, I teach English, or I teach history not realizing that you need to speak Spanish. And I don't speak a lick of Spanish. Like I can say hola and como esta. And if I say that, it could end up a conversation and I'm stuck from there. So <laughs> I literally couldn't, I couldn't get a job. So all of us figured out, you know, we can do this mentoring thing. Um, at that time, his mom was real influential kind of getting us started. So I ended up getting my own, the 501c3. It was what's called the Truth Program. We developed a curriculum, um, and it was me, Carol, and Forrest, uh, our frat brother. And we all started working, and we were working at uh, Pace School for Girls. We worked at Charles Drew, and there was another school that we worked at. But we had to come through James E. Scott Community Association. Uh, we got a grant, a federal grant, from Anita Bach, who was one of the state reps at that time. She funded the program, and we went into the schools, and we were really making an impact just trying to get them to see life the way we saw it. And I still had a motto to this day. We wanted them to know everything that we know now at a young age so they didn't have to make the same mistakes. So it was real life conversation. So we used a lot of music. Um, I would listen to like KRS-One and like take all of his lyrics and put it on a piece of paper. And then we would go through and we would break down songs, challenging people that, yeah, you may like a song, but what is the message in the song and why you like it? and get kids to listen to the song first, then you break down the lyrics, and then you get them to listen to the song again, and it completely changed your perspective, because a lot of things in the music at that time were positive. So you got Public Enemy, you got Carrots One, you got X-Clan, like you got, you got De La Soul, you got Tribe Called Quest, you got a lot of positive energy that's going into the music that's coming out. So how do you get that in order to uplift the people? Um, that's kind of what we did. Um, it was really about branching out and making our whole community better. 
Um, and that's something that we hear and I figure out. Then we start trying to figure out, you know, how can we take this to another level? Because you're in Miami, so we start trying to plan, you know, like little bold excursions, uh, doing concerts, like truly trying to capitalize on the lights and everything that you got down in Miami. Life happens, and I end up having to leave. They still there, but we luckily we were able to get reconnected. That's why I'm here with you, folks. Right. So you say, and we'll get into that reconnection right after this. But so you said you was in Miami for a time. Y'all started that mentoring program and then life happened. Um, where did that take you out of outside of Miami? Where did you end up at? You know, that, life, that life happened literally brought me back to Cleveland. So my wife and I had gotten married. Um, we got to a point where I couldn't get a job. I was in New Jersey, I'm from Cleveland. So we had to make some real tough decisions. So do we continue to try and live our life here in Miami, or do we relocate to a better opportunity? And I knew from growing up in Cleveland kind of what the environment was. Um, I love the city to death, but I understand that there's a level of sophistication. Um, so things in Miami move a whole lot faster. They're a whole lot more relevant than what happens in Cleveland. So Cleveland's about maybe a year behind the current trends. Uh, so things that are already happening in New York, LA, and Chicago, and Miami, by the time they get to Cleveland, it's old news because that's just the way that the market works. It wants to get to the big cities first, kind of test it out. That's how you build your popularity. So by the time they get to Cleveland, Cleveland people heard it. It's like, oh, you know what? I already heard that. We wanted some new stuff, but glad y'all finally got it. So that was the thought, like, I know where I'm from. I know I can get a job. Let me go back home, let me get everything set up. And then I'll bring you with me. Uh, so I literally packed up everything. We had bought a condo, we ended up selling a condo. I packed up everything that we had in the car. I drove home, 22 hour drive, back to the house and set everything up there. Brought her with me and we lived there uh, pretty much for the next almost 20 years. Um, so we ended up literally starting from scratch, moving back in with mom, um, start trying to continue to do the self-employed thing with my own business. She ended up having my oldest daughter in 2000, um, continued doing business stuff. So at that time, I had opened a couple of tax offices. I still had my youth program. I was writing grants. I had my own clothing line. We were doing concerts, bringing outcasts and Lauren Hill. We were doing poetry slams, like we were really making it happen. Um, she got pregnant with my younger daughter. To a point, we had the conversation, she was like, we need health insurance, and your company doesn't give us health insurance. So I love you, but you gotta find a job. And it started on that path, working for the company that I eventually left. Um, Hold on, so let me there. stop you right there. So when you talk about the getting into the health insurance thing, with your businesses as an entrepreneur at that time, were you, you know, bringing in a decent check or was it still kind of sort of a struggle, you know, trying to support the family? It was still kind of a struggle because everything was fresh or so tax season only go for a period. And mm -hmm. then you got to try and build your in order to, okay, so what happens after March? Like where you get income from March in order to support the family. So that may go for like March to May. So it was really a hustle trying to make it to where it was sustainable income. Um, at that time, because I wasn't, there kind of through my growth period people knew me from high school but you come back and like i'm doing all this stuff and that's literally what it was it was a lady that was consulting she sat me down she's like you can't get any funding because people can't understand how you do what you do like they know you're doing the clothes 
They know you're doing a concert. They know you opening the tax business. They know you running with the youth program. They know you writing grants. And in their mind, they're trying to figure out when do you sleep. So they're nervous. They don't know whether you're going to break down, whether you're going to be able to keep up with pace. So people are real hesitant about giving you the funding that you need in order to build your business. You got to pick one. That's kind of crazy and because it, if you're being that successful and you got that, that type of hunger, and drive like why wouldn't like is that just a cleveland thing or like because i can see that as me being an investor and i have a dude that's showing success in several businesses and me not wanting to really give him that money so i don't i don't really understand how they came to that conclusion yeah that's the cleveland thing that's literally what it is that's how the cleveland environment is that's how the people are um instead of them truly embracing it as we're going to support you with what you're doing like they want to figure out how you're doing it, why you're doing it. They ask you all those type of questions before they even get to a point to say, well, you know what? I don't even have the money to give you anyway. I was just trying to get as much information as I could. Um, and that's kind of where it got to. A lot of people got ambition, but it's truly not about the substance. And because it gets to a point like when you're there, like if you are a higher level thinker, yeah, you're running a community, but it's a lot of old money that runs Cleveland. Just from the people coming from that time, um, they don't leave their position. So a lot of your CEOs, a lot of your people with money, they real got old school, real laid back. It's not about your education. It's not about your degree. It's about who you know. And that's how you break into it within the city of Cleveland itself. You really got to know people. So there's people there that aren't qualified in any capacity that are running the government, that are running communities, that are running Fortune 500 companies because you the nephew or the son-in-law and the person with the master's from Harvard or business school, they can't get a job because you are a threat to me because you can find out what I don't know. And if you find out what I don't know, that's going to make me look illegitimate to the people that I got working for me. So I'm just going to blackball you and keep you out. And that's what it got to. It got to a point where I had conversations. People are like, you know what? You got some great stuff going on. You know, I'll get back to you. Maybe you don't hear from me. And then three, four weeks later, you look up and they trying to replicate what you do. Um, and it was a real eye-opening experience to the point where once you had the conversation about doing health insurance and all of that, it got to a point where I was so tired of having to redo and reprove myself every time. I was like, you know what? You're right. This is that time, I'm out. And literally just one day, my cousin, he pulled up with his van and he and my god brother, we took everything out of our office that I considered for me to be of value, for me to move forward, put it all in plastic tubs, stuck it in the back and I went to work full time for one of the people that I had as one of my clients. Okay. Um, and I, yeah, I started there in 2003 and I literally stayed there until this summer, July. I went from running a school day program to becoming associate director to literally being in line to take over the agency in a matter of 14 years. Um, wife got a job with me to New Jersey and that's basically how everything unfolded. Um, and that's what I mean by being so different there. Like it's it's so close knit that people don't look at your resume. They don't look at your educational background. Um, they see those things as as being intimidating. So the smarter you are, the 
harder it is for you to get into positions of power in Cleveland because those people that are there, they've known the other person since high school. So we graduated together. So yeah, I'm gonna put you in this position versus you necessarily being the most qualified. Um, so during that time, I was truly able to build it to where people started to understand who I was. Mm -hmm. um, they started to understand passion. And I was able to really make some change in my position. But people saw that because I was not a threat. Because you know where I work. You know I got limitations. Um, it even got to a point where some people in my office that were higher than me in leadership saw me as a threat. So you were trying to keep it in a box. Like you can only do so much, but I need you to do everything. But I'm not going to pay you to a point where you're worth that because we just don't do it that way. Um, so the money's real skewed. So you're working in a nonprofit, making little money, doing more than the schools that you're working with. So you got assistant principals and principals at schools that make six figures. Um, and then me and my position, I'm helping those individuals make their school environment better, making their students better, but I'm not making the same dollar amount that you are. Um, so it becomes a different perspective on life, um, but it makes you kind of really follow your passion. And as long as you're about your passion, as long as you're about your goals, um, as long as you're about family, as long as you're doing everything the right way in a positive way, life will work out. Um, and I've always been blessed to have that. Whenever we as a family or I as a person needed something, it came. Even if it was the last five minutes, it came before I actually needed it and had to go down that road. So I'm happy about the path that we're on as a family and that I'm on. Man, it's real good stuff. Okay, cool, man. Let's talk about how that path led you back to Carol and back to Fledgeology, man. How did that, how did that happen? Well, it's wild. Um, January of 2016, you had to ask me where I'd be. I tell you, I'm in Cleveland. My daughter's here to graduate from high school in two years. Um, I got my other two coming up. I'm working at this nonprofit and my wife is a teacher. Um, in March, my wife got uh, offered a job to, to truly change our entire life. Um, so she graduated uh, in 2016. 16 during that summer, no, 2015, University of Florida with her master's in forensic science. She had been trying to get different jobs, apply for different jobs. And her being from Jersey, us living in Cleveland, things weren't always as fast as the New York East Coast lifestyle. So she was always to a point where, you know, at some point in time we may leave, but if we do, it's got to be for the right reason. So she got offered a job to work for the Chief Medical Examiner of New York. Um, and at that point in time, it's something that you can't turn down. So I know everybody watches CSI New York, Law and Order. And I said these shows are based off of actual real life cases. That's literally her job every day. She is working with those real life cases that make those shows. So we had the conversation. There was a point it's like, you know what? Like, hey, is that the show? She was like, yeah, okay, well, I guess we're moving. So that was March. She started in May. Um, I gave my letter of resignation in June. The kids moved in July. We put the house on the market. I get here in August, and her commute is a lot. She has a big commute in the morning. She got a big commute in the afternoon and evening coming home. So she works in New York City. We live about 15 miles from Philadelphia. 
Um, so we got three. I got a 16-year-old, I got a 13-year-old, and I got an 11-year-old son. So trying to make sure that they got taken care of on a daily basis. We're getting them to school, being present. Both of us couldn't work in New York. Um, somebody had to be closed in order things happen. So I took the experiences that I had over that time period working for that agency, and I went right back to doing the self-employed thing. Um, so everything to a point that I had left at that 2003 time when we had the conversation about the health insurance. Uh, I'm a very organized person, uh, borderline OCD. So <laughs> I had kept everything from that point. Um, so I still got the floppy disk when we were doing the program. I still got the manuals and just brought it back out. Um, and so I was going back to Cleveland. I had announced everything on Facebook and kind of the social media thing that I opened my own business. These are the things that I'm doing. I'm going to head back to Cleveland, do some work. And this is where I live. At the time that I said, this is where I live, Carol reached out and said, I'm on my way there. I'm coming to Atlantic City to do public speaking. And that was one of the things that I had set up as a component of my customer. So he and I kind of reconnected. I was like, all right, well, I'm gonna get back to you because I gotta leave. I'm going to Cleveland, and you're coming into Atlantic City, but I'll connect back up with you. Uh, we connected back up. We had the conversation about flag allergy, um, and it fit with the exact same thing that I was trying to do. My company's name is Panashka. Um, and it had the exact same lineup with that. Um, I met you brothers. I had already heard of you, um, but because of me leaving, I had never met. Uh, I don't think I met a lot of brothers after 96. Like I met a couple at Keith Williams. I think I met Corey, but I had always heard about Brett. I had always heard about, like, uh, I'll call him Anthony, um, but. <laughs> Child would always talk about, you know, Brett, Keith, and everybody would talk, so I knew of you. Um, I knew Gary from when we were back, so me and everybody else, they was on the team. Um, and then after that first conversation, it was like mine, they were all together. So, I thank everybody for allowing me in. Um, it feels like, you know, things have just been seamless from the time from 97 and 96, back when we were doing things in Miami. And now it's nearly a whole East Coast and Miami, place, which is good. Um, it's growth. So right, right, I man. I think that's what. And I think, um, you know, the addition, you know, for me, is really exciting because just your background, um, you know, having the mentoring program, having the, the school programs in Cleveland, starting them up in Miami. You know, I think you're getting back into that in, in, in Jersey now, but bringing that aspect to the team, and some of the ideas that you have brought when we have our meetings, I'm really excited about it because I feel like that is one thing, that is a place that I want to take Flagology in the future. Um, you know, we're yeah. working on the motivational speaking thing and you know, we're doing that now, but definitely as a subsidiary of the company, I definitely want to get into that mentoring piece because I feel like that that's my purpose. You know, that, that's been my calling. I've done mentoring programs in the past with the frat. And so when Carol brought that to the table, um, brought you to the table and you would outline, you know, some of the the program and the, the, the big, you know, I guess venture. We're not going to let it out the bag yet, but the big venture, you know, that knowing yep. exactly what that is and about. I can't wait to get started on it. So I'm definitely happy. Definitely happy you brought you to the team, man. Um, I think it's a great, great addition. And, you know, I'm excited about what we got going forward. 
Excited with Fledgeology, man. That leap, that grow, that fly. We're going to do it. So before we get out of here, Fresh, I'm going to need it one more time, man. Drop it, dog. As we close out the show, man, it's been amazing here. Sitting here with 92OD, Mike D. What's going on, man? Uh, is there anything that you want to leave, like any quick message that you want to leave with the people before we close the show? Yeah, everybody follow your purpose. I mean, regardless of what you think it is, like internally, you have those conversations with yourself to where you know you have a greater purpose in life. If you're not following your purpose, if you're not doing meaningful things in this world, you only get one shot at it. So you got to make sure that you're leaving an impact. What is your legacy going to be? And that should be your mark that you leave on the world. Everybody leaves a mark. Everybody leaves an impression. And it's your choice of how you leave that impression and what you do to impact others. And as long as you can live, your name will live forever. And that's by the impact that you make. That's the reason why we talk about Martin Luther King, we talk about Malcolm X, we talk about Marcus Garvey, we talk about Rosa Parks. It was a mark that they left, and that was their purpose, and they followed it. And that's all you got to do. You do that, you'll be on the path to live forever. Um, even if you're not here, you will still live forever in the minds and history of this world. That's it, people. There it is, man. And we out of here. Thank you for listening. Joining us here on the 13th floor where the furniture isn't always the best, but the views are amazing. We out. Root to the cubes. Root, root. Now is your time to flinch. flinch.